Welcome to Sex Spoken Here with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I am a sex coach and relationship psychologist and created this show to help you solve any sexual problems, learn about all things sexy, sensual, and intimate, and create your ideal lasting relationship. In my virtual therapy room, I answer questions, interview experts, and provide tips that you can use straight away. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies to help you create a problem-free, exciting sex life. Make sure you join us to be up to date on all events and to easily access coaching at www.the-intimacy-coach.com. Welcome to my virtual therapy room. I'm Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, and this is Sex Spoken Here. Please remember this podcast deals with adult themes. So if you don't have privacy, you may wish to put on your headphones. Today is part one of a two-part interview. Part two will be found on the A to Z of sex. The letter is F and F is for freedom, sexual freedom. Joining me today is Susan Wright, who founded the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom in 1997 and currently serves as chairperson and director of incident reporting and response. Susan also serves on the advocacy committees for ASECT, the Kink Clinician Guidelines, the Kink Knowledgeable Program, and the Diverse Sexualities Research Education Institute. Susan has conducted six surveys on discrimination and violence against BDSM practitioners, consent practices and attitudes, and the mental and physical health of BDSM and non-monogamy practitioners that have been published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, Journal of Sexual Medicine, Journal of Behavioral Health Services and Research, the International Journal of Social Psychiatry, Psychiatry, the Journal of Trauma and Dissociation, and the Journal of Homosexuality. If you have not looked at some of these articles, whether you are a practitioner or you are an ordinary individual, I suggest you do. They are really eye-opening, and they're not difficult to read. Welcome to the show, Susan. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. So can we start with what made you decide to start this organization? I was working on a project in the 90s uh, for the National Organization for Women. I'd been a non-member since I was 16. And um, there was a problem because they had this anti-SM policy. And they said that, you know, BDSM is violence against women. So, and it perpetuated the patriarchal, you know, beliefs. So what that did was um, there was unfortunately incidents of women being attacked by other women especially at lesbian sort of events like the Women's Michigan, uh, Michigan Women's Festival and Music Festival. And, you know, like they would actually be kind of attacked on, on the pathways. They'd have to travel in packs and sleep in their own area um, because if they had any sort of leather on or collar, they were considered to be fair game, which I thought was just reprehensible. And there was a, um, there was a survey done by Female Trouble that found out that a very large percentage of the lesbians who were involved in the SM community at the time had been attacked. Um, So um, I started this project. It went for several years. Uh, We went around the country uh, helping people give workshops at their local uh, now chapters and at the regional conferences. We had have an exhibit table and gave a workshop for uh, just, you know, an introduction to, to BDSM. And this is why it's important not to discriminate against people who are into it because we are, attacked so often and discriminated against. 
So as I was doing this project, I kept on having um, women come to me and say, I lost custody of my kids because I'm involved in kink or um, I got fired from my job or I have a security clearance and you know, I'm afraid I'm going to lose it because I don't know if I can say anything. And yet if I don't disclose, I'm violating my security. Yeah. Um, on and on. I just kept getting these, these, you know, these hearing these things. And so uh, since I'd been traveling around the country, kind of organizing nationally, I made contact with a lot of the groups. We weren't as networked together then as we are now. Yeah. And so um, I've, went to five of them and I said, you know, let's form a coalition and get other groups involved in this and really do it as a grassroots where the groups themselves run NCSF. They decide what it is that we're working on, what the focus should be, because they know they hear from their members and they elect the board and uh, hold the board responsible for fulfilling their orders. And at this point we have 80 coalition partners. Wow. Yeah. And these are all, you know, uh, groups and businesses. Uh, some of the businesses are like swing clubs. Mm-hmm. Some of them are like kink events that are run like a business. Um, and uh, lots of nonprofit groups. And we also have supporting members. We have over 40 supporting members that are groups and businesses, um, as well as some individuals. But it, but there's a lot of like vendors who are supporting right. members. Um, and, and so that's what NCSF is geared to do is to help groups and businesses help their members by kind of being interfaced. They didn't want to go public and talk to the media. So NCSF does that. Um, you know, they didn't know how to go out and talk to the police. So NCSF, you know, started doing that 21 years ago for local groups. And I still do that where I contact the, the local police and I say, Hey, there's going to be an event in your town and give them the information so that People don't have to fly under the radar. We've interceded with hotels. Um, when big hotel chains wanted to stop letting us have conferences, NCSF had to get attorneys and fight this um, uh, because you're not allowed to discriminate against groups of people when it comes to housing. Right. So, you know, we were able to maintain, um, you know, our access to these kind of mid-range hotels where they have conference space, and that allowed our subculture to flourish. That's so amazing to me. I mean, I know over in the UK, um, there's nothing that does this. So what we've got, um, I mean, people know that I'm, I'm originally from the States, but we've got over here, um, I've been like someone who has dealt with uh, nurses and doctors in, um, on psychiatric units when people have been admitted and access was stopped to their um, master's. Mm. and or mistresses and it's been an it's been a huge issue it's like well this person's vulnerable and we think that relationship is bad for them so I've had to intercede and and you know show research and explain that that this wasn't okay and it wasn't okay to separate somebody from their significant other on the basis of what they do not on the basis of some very good evidence about that particular individual relationship, but we don't have anything like this. It's just, if if you're somebody who is knowledgeable, people start to know. So I get calls about custody disputes. That's the most common because I do uh, assessment and I do custody dispute assessment as a psychologist. And they know that I'm not going to make a judgment based on their sexual practices. That won't be an issue. The issue will be what are their boundaries like? You know, how how are, how are they able to care? What's their um, psychological state and their connection with the children? And and that 
their sexuality won't come into it. So it's so important for there to be an organization that will actually help groups and individuals or help the local groups to help their own individuals. Right. And, you know, we're actually seeing that there's such a need for this um, outside of the U.S. We've actually gotten some Canadian advocates who are doing work um, up in Canada. And, you know, we're willing to, like, for you, you're listed on our Kinkaware Professionals list. Yep. Uh, that's for worldwide. And it's getting bigger every time. Hey. hey. <laughs> Sees your dog. No. <laughs> Do you hear growling? You do. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's important that we make this a worldwide effort um, so that people don't have to reinvent the wheel in every country because every country is very different. Like we deal with a lot of legal issues. So we are trying to recruit lawyers from Canada who are willing to, to work on when an issue comes up. Um, people who understand their, um, the legal situation there. So, I mean, for us, it's different from the U.S. and, and that actually um, um, various practices became illegal a number of years ago. Um, and if um, the police come upon you and you're bruised and battered, consent, it doesn't matter if they decide to charge the other person, they decide to charge them, period. So you can't, consent is not a reason for them to let somebody who assaults you go. As far as they're concerned, all BDSM is an assault. Now, that doesn't mean that they necessarily, you know, peek into everyone's bedrooms and, and, go, and go arrest everyone. But if you are in a high risk group and, and a, or in a group that's um, causing other problems right. and get targeted, that is another thing that they pull out and throw in. So like many years ago, um, when homosexuality was illegal, that was you know, added in. It was something that was added in. Um, right. But they've, they've, they've made new statutes. The pornography we have, for example, is now all illegal. I don't know. Did you hear about the um, face-sitting protest outside the Houses of Parliament a few years ago? <laughs> the face-sitting yeah, So when they made this law, one of the things that they outlawed, they outlawed, this is supposed to be protecting children from pedophilia, wait right. for it, and women, from, and, and women and men from sexual exploitation, so from, from being trafficked. So they decided that basically anything that could possibly physically injure another person was pushing forward those, um, those movements, trafficking and pedophilia, and therefore would now be outlawed. So you couldn't have your standard BDSM pornography. You couldn't download it. You couldn't look at it without it being illegal. And one of the activities that they included was face-sitting. And so quite a number of people found this ridiculous. And as a result, um, there was a large group of people, they stayed dressed, but outside the Houses of Parliament, a bunch of people sat on another bunch of people's faces and sang Sit on My Face by Monty Python as part of the protest. <laughs> it was fantastic. It was great. Um, the law still passed, though. So right now, if you have pictures like that, they're illegal. Wow. You know, and that's causing problems for um, entities like FetLife that's, yes. you know, worldwide. I mean... Um, uh, I know that there's issues with being in compliance with uh, the UK law, the German law as yep. well, um, because how can, and then, and these are very enlightened countries. That's not even like the really repressive countries that, right. um, you know, forbid any kind of uh, pornography or have problems with any kind of pornography, even the most vanilla tame. 
Um, so yeah, we're finding that this is a hard um, road to walk in terms mm -hmm. of like, how do, you, how do you stay in compliance with this and still be able to allow to have UK members um, you know, on your international website? Well, and then it's also things like um, the activities themselves are not necessarily illegal, right? Because it's weird gray area. It's just like sometimes, sometimes going to a prostitute is not illegal, but the prostitute selling her wares is illegal, right? So, right. so they're so, weird people. So you could have a conference here and, and be fine, <laughs> and be fine but, but I'm not sure how many major hotels would be willing it, to right. have you bring dungeon equipment in. Because right. Oh, especially because it, it and especially because um since spanner it, yeah. it's been considered um illegal there to do bdsm and so I, I don't know how many conferences that you have we don't have many the answer is we don't have many what we have when we have events they tend to be in pub or private or bars and they move around a lot because getting to stay at a particular place is not easy um, and and that's so, the ideal. What you want is you want to be able to create a structure for the education because people yep. are going to do this anyway. And if you do not have the uh, adult sexuality education available, and there's like this giant team of volunteers that are willing to give this education and, you know, peer support where people can get together and ask their questions and talk about it and, and learn how to talk about sex, which we're not taught how to talk about sex. Right. So that's why we find a rush when people come to one of these events because suddenly they have the access to be able to speak yep. their desire. And it, you know, honestly, you, you, that's why so many people have the false idea that for, for having any kind of sex at all, talking about it ruins the spontaneity. It's like, no, talking about it is the best foreplay in the world. And if you can't, but people don't want to do that because they're not taught how to do that. It feels very scary. It makes them feel very vulnerable. So if you have an event where everybody can come and somebody can just kind of hesitantly ask a few questions and realize this is not that difficult. Here's how you talk about it. Um, then they can go off to their partner and talk about it. And that makes a healthier, safer sex life for those yeah. people. And what, what we do have is we have people teaching without um, there being like the play space. So like if I were going to organize a conference, I wouldn't have trouble organizing a conference where we were talking about all these things. I might even be able to show implements and stuff so I could do all of the basics. But, but setting up an in-house dungeon like some of the events do, like for the weekend so people could play, that probably wouldn't fly. Most of the events here do that. <laughs> and that's probably a big draw of it because yes. not only that, but also being able to see demos where yeah. people are actually doing it. That is really important because, um, you know, we're dealing with, okay, tie the rope here. Here's how tight you want to do it. You know, here's where you want to strike the body. Here's where you don't want to. Yep. You have to have a demo to, to be able to show that. And you also need to have the grassroots um, check on what's happening. If people are just out there individually doing this, there's nothing to make sure that they're, you know, talking about consent, that they're uh, actually qualified to be able to do, you know, teach this kind of skill. If it's being done at a conference, you've got their, their peers there, their other educators there, watching what's happening, hearing feedback. And so there is... It's, it's a community that can, can, police it, can police itself in that way, um, where they make sure that they're always presenting the highest quality, even though these are just volunteers doing it. So um, 
let's talk about consent and what's going on in the states with um, the change in uh, government because now, of course, there's a very evangelically influenced government right now, and so a lot of things are changing in the states. Um, and I and I I've seen it reflected in the way people talk about consent. Mm. The consent yeah. minimized again. Well, it's, it's, um, you know, on one hand, um, a conservative administration that has definitely brought with it a lot more discrimination mm-hmm. than we've seen um, under the Obama administration. Um, we were down to like 135 reports a year. Now we're back up to 300 because wow. it's not just child custody, job discrimination, um, but it is also consent issues have skyrocketed. Now, part of that is because of the Me Too movement, which has really raised awareness and empowered people to speak out kind of in the face of the fact that, that people just didn't seem to care, um, that there was moral lapses among our leadership that, you know, and it's funny us talking about that because so often the fact that somebody's involved in BDSM was used as a way to discredit them. Yeah. Well, um, that's, it's like a conflation of BDSM is consensual, responsible sexuality, non-consensual groping of people because you're a powerful person is completely the opposite. So I don't understand why for so long sexuality was used to discredit politicians, even when it was consensual. And then yet now we're suddenly seeing all these incidences, um, you know, not, not just from our president, but also the latest Supreme Court justice, um, where people are willing to overlook these things. Um, and so I think that we still have a long way to go. I think we've only just really opened up the box to, to look in and see how, how terrible the situation is. And uh, the BDSM and the non-monogamy communities have really kind of pioneered an understanding of consent. We've been doing this for decades. We know it is not a black and white issue. And we know that, that it's not what you do, but it's how you do it. And it's, um, it's whether you do it safely and consensually and make sure that everybody's on board and informed, which means you have to talk about it. Whereas there's just still this very oppressive, um, you know, river running through the United States of people that want us to stop talking about sex, shut down the images. Although it's funny, there was a political article that just came out a couple of days ago about how the GOP, the Republicans have given up on porn as um as an issue um but yet on the other hand their big national center on sexual exploitation uh that used to be uh morality in the media really pushed through fosta sesta Mm -hmm. Um, those are the new kind of laws on the internet that are being used to cut off conversation especially for sex workers it's really damaged their ability to be able to review clients to be safe um and it's a cutoff uh, law enforcement's ability to actually find people who are trafficking underage people. I mean, we really should be focusing on people who are being trafficked, not consensual sex work, and definitely anything to do with minors and sexuality um, needs to be uh, dealt with. And, and instead of wasting resources. Well, yeah, um, I mean, that, that, which is what happens. Resources, I always find it interesting how the best example I have of this is when my son was six months old, we were, we were in a public pool in the UK for swimming lessons with him. 
And my parents are in the US and this was their first grandchild. And I really wanted them to be able, I videoed almost everything like, cause, cause they were seeing him like three times a year and it wasn't enough. And so, you know, so everything I could do to get them to be able to see him. So I'm there with the video camera, shooting my son in the pool, having his swimming lesson. And the guy comes up to me and uh, um, one of the center staff comes up to me and says, you can't do that. And I said, why? And he said, well, you know, um, you can't do that. It could get on the internet. And I said, but I'm, this is a video camera with a tape in it. <laughs> why would that get on the internet? Right. And, and he was like, it could get on the internet. And then, um, you know, it could be used by a pedophile. And I, and I was like, okay, there's no logic in this whatsoever. So I said, look, you're not being logical. It's my camera. It's my child. What I choose to do with my images is my business as long as I'm not breaking any laws. And I know I'm not breaking a law videotaping my son in the pool. Right. Well, he said that the law for the council was you're not allowed to do this because you know, pedophiles get a hold of this stuff. And I said, so what you're telling me is, is that you are telling me that my son is obscene. Mm. He said, I'm not. I said, I said, you are. You're telling me that my son is obscene and in some way sexually provocative in his swim nappy in the pool at six months old. Because you're using what some ill person finds interesting and yeah. sexually exciting to define what people who are not ill can do. And I said, I gotta, I gotta tell you, Pedophiles find catalogs of kids in clothing sexually attractive, right? So right. unless you're going to eliminate all images of children from everywhere, you're not going to solve the problem this way. And I almost took them to court. I came really close to taking them to court because I was so incensed because it's so illogical and I run into that attitude all the time. We're going to protect you from these faceless people out there by not letting you do something that you want to do that isn't criminal. Right. Right. It's just such misplaced um, desire to stop bad things from happening when really what we need to do is educate everybody about how to be responsible about their sexuality, educate kids mm. to, at an appropriate age of like consent. Consent education is, is sort of given to kids, but it needs to be like a concerted, thoughtful effort, um, which also focuses on Yes, it, it, like not letting teachers touch kids, you know, because that or manhandle kids because that teaches them that an adult can come up and do that and they'll get they can get away with it. And then what that's doing is that's teaching them that they don't have boundaries. So I know. And um, then, then when they ask for a hug, they can't have one because we stop them doing that. Right. You know, so it's like you're not actually stopping the bad stuff. What you're stopping is the good stuff because you're just throwing everything into this basket and, and getting very extreme. And it's the black and white bit of it. And that's the problem. Of course, they don't see any shades of gray. And all of this is complex. So you can't do a five minute ad um, like all the just say no to drugs campaign like that was going to stop drug use. Right. Just say no. <laughs> no, you actually have to educate people on why you want to say no to drugs. Exactly. Because it's not black and white. Um, I, I interviewed Kitty Stryker some time ago on consent, um, and I found very interesting her talking about, well, what do we do with consent violators? And how do we prevent ourselves as a community from when somebody makes a mistake and violates someone's consent, not automatically excluding them forever versus those people who violate consent will, willfully all the time, who are the people that should be moved 
out of the community. Um, and you guys have done the most work on this. What do you think, how do we deal with this issue? Well, NCSF has a lot of facts on our uh, website, in particular to help uh, groups on dealing with consent incidents, because we were finding that there was a real need um, for a strategy, um, which is great. We want them to be dealing with these, these things. It, there's also some facts on there to help individuals, you know, have I been assaulted, you know, um, and a, a trauma pamphlet, because a lot of people don't understand that when you've experienced trauma, you can have very erratic reactions. Yep. And for people who like a group leader, who's trying to judge if something happened, they see somebody laughing and saying, Oh no, it's no big deal instead of looking at the facts of what happened mm -hmm. and realize, okay, well, this person may have been betrayed in a very big way. And so they're denying it to themselves right now. In a couple of weeks when they process this, they're going to be back and, and they're going to be upset that it wasn't dealt with um, because they themselves were trying to deal with it emotionally. So we have a lot of facts to help people do with, do deal with that. Um, we talk about having to ha have a consent policy. We think it's really important. I mean, a lot of these groups have a policy for how to clean the furniture. You know what I mean? The dungeon rules. But we need to have a consent policy just for the entire event so that people understand that you don't touch without permission. You don't address somebody as master or slave without permission. Without permission, yeah. You need to negotiate from a position of equals. So laying out the idea of don't renegotiate in the middle of a scene. You can take things away in the middle of a scene, but you don't add in something. When somebody's no longer in the right mind to be able to coherently think about something and decide if this is what they want or not, they're already in that submissive headspace um, or in the top headspace if it's the submissive pushing something that the top doesn't want. Um, so we really believe that you negotiate what you want, you opt in at the beginning, and, um, and then you don't, don't mess with that. If you want to have another scene, you do it later. So we also give groups questions to ask, um, whether it's something that happens right there at their event or something that happened off-site. Um, because uh, we don't want them to have to get into the position of, of arbitrating interpersonal disputes. Right. Mm. Um, if somebody sends an email that another person doesn't like, well, or FetLife, deal with FetLife with that. You know what I mean? It's not for us to deal with. We really suggest that they stick to things that are liability issues because right. if somebody has reported a crime at your event, then that's the a liability issue. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to come in and they're going to interview everybody who saw it. So you do not want somebody who is committing crimes at your event. Um, not only does it hurt your members, but then it can backlash on the, on the board of directors and affect your insurance and the venue venues do not want to be associated with this. So that's what's kind of kept it down in the past, but we're trying to codify this. So to help groups go, oh, here's kind of the roadmap. And one of those things that we, we point to is you have to, when you evaluate the uh, incident, you need to look at like the seriousness of it. Did it cause injury? There's a liability issue. Um, was it an emotional injury? Okay, that's something to take into account, but it's, it's, um, if somebody actually injures somebody where they need physical uh, medical attention, you may not want to let that person, even if it was accidental, back yeah, into your. You may not want it, yeah, because that that created a, a really bad liability for the for the event. Yeah, for the, for the members and the and the organizers. Um, but one of the things we really point to is multiple accusations, mm -hmm. um, because a lot of times the first consent incident can be a learning experience. We're here to educate and teach people. And groups really do bend over backward to teach people. 
to even if it's a social incident oh you're not supposed to do that and here's why if it's a more serious one here we really need you to like work on this issue um, they may assign monitors to watch the person when they're there they may assign a dungeon monitor to be there for during the negotiation in the scene if the person has a scene they may decide to keep somebody out of the, the play space entirely until they've proven themselves over a year of work of taking classes and um, keeping their nose clean you know what I mean so there's all these different levels of things you can do the one thing that we really do encourage is that if the person is a presenter or a staff member they have an inherent power and if they're abusing that power you really cannot be a part of that so um, I think that's one reason why you see we, we deal behind the scenes we're not going right. to come out publicly we're helping groups behind the scenes deal with this but there's been a number of presenters over this past year that are no longer presenters um, because groups are not asking them to present because there's been too many accusations against them. So let's let's take an example because it, it kind of helps codify it, I think, for other people. Um, there was an incident where somebody added to a scene without having negotiated it. There was no physical injury. The person just had not. It was something that the person said they didn't want to do and the person added it in and, and did it anyway. Right. There was an apology made. In fact, there was a public apology made. Mm. So what kind of apology. Because <laughs> uh, that matters. Right, exactly. Well, that's the first <laughs> bit. Um, the, the first apology was needed work. The second apology was, was much better. Was okay. the person had obviously understood more okay. about why this was such a big deal. Right. But in any event, I don't know whether it was resolved or not. All I know, and the only reason I know a lot about this, is that um, I interviewed this person for um, one of my podcasts, and I got a note from somebody asking me to take the interview down. Mm. Is this person still presenting, or are they, not, are they banned from groups? No, they're not banned from groups. I checked into it. They're not banned from groups. They're not really presenting. There isn't a long list of these things that I could find. Right. Um, there was this very public thing, but again, I don't have all the details, so I can't make a judgment about it. So I, I felt like I was in a very difficult position because if I took down interviews with everybody who had ever been accused of a consent violation, half my interviews would go. <laughs> because... It's unfortunate, when, it's unfortunate, but it's true. When people, you know, people have different perceptions of what they need consent for. I mean, for me, this is, you know, whether they need to get consent, you know, these days they, they're telling teenagers that, you know, you need enthusiastic consent at every stage. So you need to stop after you kissed her and ask for enthusiastic consent again. And, you, and I'm like, no, you do it the way we do it, right? Even if you're not all doing beforehand. it, do it all beforehand so you don't feel like a fool, right? Constant questioning can be very coercive as well. That, exactly. So it, it, it's this whole, and so there hasn't been really comprehensive training in this over many years. This is new and new in terms of training in some areas. In other areas, people have a lot of training. So there isn't, there isn't a cohesive policy for groups as no. to what it is. Now, if it, if it was truly what was said to me, right, this thing happened, I would consider that lower down the scale. That would be something where somebody would need to understand why what they did was not okay, make a proper apology, not I'm sorry you were hurt, you know, but, but I screwed up, right? And then make whatever amends were necessary. 
but that doesn't mean I would necessarily be saying ban this person forever from this, that, and the other. Versus and most, most groups probably wouldn't ban somebody on the basis of one first But it's not a group thing. That's what I'm saying. So you get individuals screaming and shouting. This is the problem. You know, without an understanding of the situation, it's similar to what's happened with me too, where an accusation gets made and a hundred other people chime on board with the accusation without knowing the, the facts of what happened. Mm -hmm. And suddenly a person finds themselves having to defend themselves at every corner. Versus, was this a first-hand report that you got? Hmm? Uh, no, no, this was a third-hand report. No, you, that's the one thing that we really insist on is that it has to be a first-hand report. Exactly. Somebody come to you to tell, because otherwise you're having a game of telephone and you may not know what the real truth of the whole situation is. Um, that's the only way you can investigate and you have to be able to investigate these things. Um, NCSF collects reports and that's so that we can get people resources. We don't need to investigate because we're not banning anybody from anything. Right. Um, but we will pass on to our member groups if we have two or more reports so that they can do an investigation. And so they would have to be able to contact the people who reported. So we have to ask them, can we let them know? Um, are you willing to contact and talk to them? If they aren't, if the group can't do an investigation, sometimes they don't do anything about it. But definitely you have to operate from firsthand reports. Um, yeah. You cannot operate from a rumor mill kind of perspective. Thanks for joining me for Sex Spoken Here with Dr. Laurie Beth Bisbee this week. Please write to me with suggestions for the show, questions you want answered at drbisbee at the-intimacy-coach.com. And I will answer the questions on the show. Please follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, I am at Dr. Bisbee. Do check out my YouTube channel, which is Dr. Lori Bisbee. For a free 30-minute discovery session with me, head over to https colon forward slash forward slash the-intimacy-coach.com and click the button for the contact page. Then click the button that says click here to schedule directly. Please do leave a review on iTunes and or Stitcher if you enjoy the show. Reviews are really important because they help iTunes make suggestions and Apple Podcasts make suggestions to people about what they might enjoy. I do look forward to seeing you all next week. Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to Sex Spoken Here with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review here on iTunes or on Stitcher. And make sure you head over to www.the-intimacy-coach.com to subscribe for free newsletter updates to help you create and sustain an exciting trouble-free sexual life. Stay tuned for upcoming weekly episodes on all topics, sexy, sensual, and intimate. Thanks for listening.